I don't understand this movie at all. We need the Fiasco Brothers. You mean? Yes! Dial B for Fiasco! Hello, and welcome to episode 41 of the Fiasco Brothers Watch a Movie. I'm Tim Lenner. And I'm Sean Frost. And we have a special guest today from the Atomic Weight of Cheese. Hello, everybody. I'm Chad Blambeck. And today's film is the 1984 rock and roll fable, Streets of Fire, written by Walter Hill and Larry Gross, and directed by Walter Hill. So the first thing we tend to do is try to tell the audience what the heck we're even going to talk about. So, Sean, have you got a synopsis ready? I, I actually have one ready this time, so no more right. off the cuff for me. Another time, another place. 105080, to be precise, in a place called <laughs> Richmond, which is totally not Chicago. Rising star Ellen Aim, played by Diane Lane, is performing with her band The Attackers when a gang called the Bombers bursts in. They're led by Raven, Willem Dafoe, who has the best hair ever filmed. Ellen is kidnapped and Bill Paxton gets punched in the face. Ellen's friend Reva, Deborah Van Valkenburg, sends a telegraph to her brother, urging him to return. Tom, Michael Perret, comes into town and immediately beats up some mooks, trashes Reva's diner, and steals a car. When Reva asks him to rescue Ellen, his ex, Tom gets sulky and goes to a bar. There he meets ex-army mechanic McCoy, Amy Madigan, who won't sleep with him. Bill Paxton gets punched in the face. Tom relents and tells Reva to arrange a meeting with Ellen's manager and current beau, Billy Fish, Rick Moranis. They meet the next Bob day... Bob McKenzie! Huh? Sorry. It's Bob McKenzie! Sorry. <laughs> 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 Doug McKenzie is punched in the face. <laughs> they meet the next day at Reva's diner, and after the usual saber-rattling come to terms. Fish will pay Tom $10,000 to get Ellen back, but Fish has to navigate because he knows the battery, where the, where the bombers hang. McCoy invites herself along, and Tom cuts her in for $1,000, mainly to irritate Fish. They drive to the battery in Tom's stolen car. Tom blows up everything while McCoy and Fish drive off with Ellen, and Raven looks menacing despite wearing the most ridiculous plastic overalls ever filmed. <laughs> Somewhere, Bill Paxton is probably punched again. <laughs> and McCoy does all the hard work. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's over, but then it's not. The bombers lay siege to Richmond, insisting that Raven gets to have a fight with Tom. This is a terrible idea, so Tom shows up. Bill Paxton runs away. Tom and Raven wail on each other with railroad spike mallets for a while. Bill Paxton returns with an armed mob. Once Raven is down for the count, his number two, Lee Ving, orders a tactical retreat. Ellen gives another concert while Tom rides off to the promised sequels that were made in the same alternate timeline where The Phantom launched a franchise. So, Tim, uh, why are we covering this film? Uh... 
It's not entirely so I could make you watch it again. But that was... <laughs> this is like the fourth time! <laughs> yeah, this is like the fourth time I've watched it this year. And it's just February 5th. It It's an absolutely singular film. There is nothing else like it. It has a city set that they completely redressed a couple times to make the New York backlot look like not Chicago, not Detroit, and I don't know, maybe not Baltimore at various points. Can I interject here for a second? Oh, certainly. certainly. There's two words that always come to my mind when I think about this movie, and that is reasonable facsimile. <laughs> yes. It's, it's a completely artificial world. I, yep. the the slang is different the fashion is different the the uh, just everything public transportation is slightly different everything in it is another time another place you know cops are still jerks to the hero because the hero's got to be a hard rock and rebel who plays by his own rules Ro- the the rock and roll they sing is a mix of heavy metal and light opera it's just nifty how how they completely created this pocket universe and, you know, I always have a soft spot for the things that never went anywhere. Uh, I, I would have loved to watch Buckaroo Banzai against the World Crime League. That's never happening. Uh, so, mo- uh, you know, the set design, the, uh, the performances with one huge exception. Uh, I think it's Rick Moranis' finest hour. This is my favorite thing he's in. Okay. Uh, you know, it's, it's that. You've never quite seen anything like this, and they're never going to commit resources to anyone making anything like it again. <laughs> That's true. I, okay, because I think you kind of hit the nail on the head here, because what I think about the, in this movie, too, I call it, it's it's like the Marty McFly effect, okay? This is sort of a, a, a tale that's told in the uh, evil Back to the Future 2 timeline. You <laughs> okay. know, uh, somewhere else, you know, Marty's chasing Biff. And or this is kind of what would happen if you know Marty went back to the 1950s and borked it up, and the time machine got destroyed and he got stuck there. And, <laughs> and there's sort of a like a pebble in the water, right? And it sort of ripples out. And so you've got a world where it's the same, but it's different. Things got a little more grounded. And this is, of course, this is the timeline where white people invented rock and roll instead of you know Chuck Berry. Yeah. <laughs> and so. The music is very loud and syncopated. It's kind of like disco meets, you know, rock and roll a little bit. And so it's just, it's, like I said, it's just this weird amalgamation of like it's a neo-noir sock hop by way of Blade Runner steampunk <laughs> uh, mixed with an episode of Happy Meets Days. Hercules on a motorcycle. On exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it's just... And I said, I fell in love with this movie, and I, I didn't see it in the theater. I think uh, a friend of mine introduced it on the, the glorious VHS days. And I said, I just fell in love with it instantly because I said, I love the music. Uh, they were really shooting for something, but like I said, it just wasn't quite there. And I assume we're going to address why it didn't get quite there as oh, this discussion yeah. continues. So, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Why weren't there sequels? Well, <laughs> There's one big reason, and then... Well, the the big reason is it didn't make any money. Because I've certainly right. seen worse performances in movies that made more. Right. I, I think it was just too out there for people. I think anyone discovering it now, it's not going to look 
new you know, new wave looks 25 years old now instead of the sure. new thing when the movie came out so it's going to be like some people in 25 year old costumes and some people in 45 year old costumes <laughs> instead of retro and contemporary and, right. and I think that'll probably help the film at least a little bit yeah and also it's like uh and um guys are out of their comfort zones a little bit you know uh walter hill the director uh mm -hmm. you know this is like right in his wheelhouse but this is also he was trying to make a musical too and you know the guy can stage a fight scene but musical numbers not so much no although uh i i want to say something now before i forget it in okay. that opening scene, Ellen Aim is singing and the bikers are coming to go get her. Sure. And well, it's intercut. It's like the audience clapping along and, and then it cuts to the bikers and they're actually gunning their engine in time with the song, which is fantastic. Sure. Like, hello, you are in the heightened reality here. But yeah. it's, there's something very interesting. Like, I don't know where the battery is. I don't know anything about the Richmond, but they, they, do a like a long shot of the bikes the first time they get shown and then it's a medium shot the second time the bikers show up so they're closer to the camera so right. you know they're getting closer to the concert even though none of the geography has been established right so i just i really love that like there's a lot of care and craft that went into this mm -hmm. uh and and then unfortunately it just didn't like, it adds yeah. up something for us, but I have the feeling if you showed this movie to a thousand randomly kidnapped people, <laughs> only 15 would join the cult. Right. Yeah, like for production design and everything, it's it's kind of amazing. And it's, so it's just, it's kind of in this, like, nebulous gray area between, like, a musical and a music video. Mm -hmm. yes. And you would, you would think those would be easy to mesh, but not so much, you know, and... And, uh, but yeah, like the production design and everything. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it looks like a noir because there's water everywhere, but it's hardly ever rains. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, no, we get one climactic rainstorm when they have to kiss. That's right. That's yeah, right. Yeah. It's like a five minute monsoon because in the movies, when people kiss in those circumstances, it's always raining very heavily. <laughs> <laughs> I've always felt that Walter Hill has this, uh, difficulty where his ideas are absolutely bonkers okay but he's very rational so it doesn't quite like it's not it's done you know he has these great out there ideas he goes to film it and he films it very well but it doesn't make that connection it just doesn't complete that circuit to full on like right gonzo yeah yeah i think he, i think he, yeah i think you're absolutely right i think he has all these crazy out there ideas but then he takes those crazy ideas and he always has to put them through the same filter being it uh, a western or like a comic book movie cuz you know most of his films if you look at them they're westerns <laughs> Come on, why would you say that this movie in which the bad man comes back to his old hometown to rescue the girl who has been kidnapped by a band of hooting savages would be anything like a Western? <laughs> it's the searchers by way of Blade Runner. You win. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's, bone, it's bone tomahawk without the gruesomeness. Right. And I yeah. said, yeah, yeah, it's very comic book because like, nobody, nobody dies. There's no blood. No, I mean, a couple of people get shot at one point. Uh, when, right. when they raid torchies. But that's about it. Yep. 
Uh, and, and like when the motorcycles get shot, they just blow up into a big fireball and everyone's okay. Yeah, it's like G.I. Joe time. It's like, oh, there's the parachute. He's going to be okay. Yeah. You know yeah. that kind of thing. Oh, my God. <laughs> Does this movie take place in the same continuity as Megaforce? Yes or no? Yes or no. <laughs> Oh, I think it would have been better if it did, because you would have had that little <laughs> bit of campiness that that would have sold the whole thing. <laughs> Bearing in mind that Megaforce was also a gigantic flop that was supposed to launch a series. Yeah, but that yeah. wasn't ser- that wasn't serious enough. Right. Right. Um... So if we get somewhere between the two of them. It would have somewhere been... between two different other times and other places. I mean, there's two there's two routes you can go when your climax is people wailing on each other with mallets. One is ultra dark, okay. and the other is it's clown time. Maybe this is Walter Hill's version of camp. Yeah. He just didn't do it very well. This is as camp as the man can get. <laughs> he can only get a little bit camp. And I, I love his stuff, but there's always just that little, you're like, man, just a little tweak, and this would have been brilliant. Yeah. Right. Oh, and see, for me, and, and I hate to say this because it sounds like a knock, but I, I genuinely don't mean it as this. For me, Walter Hill's movies are always almost perfect. They're almost sure. fantastic. And and there's always that like that last inch of, oh well, if 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 they'd done it just a little bit this way, it would just I, I would like it just that little tiny bit more. Because this is I mean, this is a cult success. This was not a hit. Yeah. No. Yeah. And this is like no, his no. first uh his first bomb, right? Yeah. Because yeah. he well, had he a hell of a run. Us. Southern Comfort, The Warriors, 48 Hours, and The Long Riders in a row. And he used all of that clout, all of that studio goodwill, all of yeah. that, look, I made you this much money. And then he made Streets of Fire. This meant something to him, and he was really trying. Yeah. And they, they committed tons of resources to it. It just, it's not quite a 100% of the way there. Nope. No, yeah, because basically everybody was crapping themselves over the success of, what, 48 hours? Yeah. yeah. And that's where the studio basically said, here, take my money, go burn it on the screen, I don't care. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he went, what? <laughs> <laughs> Do I? Do yeah. I ever? <laughs> well, apparently Michael Paré got recommended by the same agent that told him, hey, there's this kid named Eddie Murphy that would probably be good in your movie. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Since 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 we've we've kind of stealth mentioned it already, and, and we've just brought him up again, let's talk yeah. about Michael Perre in this. Okay, because right. I like Michael Perre. I think he's Save fantastic here. in other movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I've I like him in this, but you need to love him. Yeah, he needs to be. The character is written. As almost like a, you know, a, a Harrison Ford role, you know, something where you're a little smarmy, but lovable. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't come off. I think uh, my friend Mike summed it up best when I showed him this movie. He said, Michael Perry in that movie is basically the living embodiment of a 404 page not found error. <laughs> because that he was he was a post. And I don't think, you know, you read up on it, I don't think Walter Hill helped him very much, because, like, what, this was his second, second or, third, or third movie. Second yeah, or third yeah. movie. Because he's great in Eddie and the Cruisers. Oh, my God, yeah. 
he's that's a fantastic film. But he, I don't know what he was trying to pull off here, but it didn't work. And I think some of it is just like you know when you when you build this entire cityscape to be your your big standing set. Mm-hmm. I think it was just too many plates spinning, and that he might not have had time to right to, to do it. You know, not enough time for Walter Hill to go, okay, now here's what I really want and work with the actors. Yeah, and I know he was really intimidated, too, because I think the other movies that he did were a bit smaller. Mm-hmm. And this was like mm-hmm. a huge studio thing. And he yeah, was the yeah. hero, and he was carrying the movie. Because Eddie and the Cruisers, that's Tom Berenger. Eddie's secondary, even though yeah. it's in the yeah. in the title. And like I said, he just he wasn't there yet to carry it. And, you know, and I think they could have helped him out a little bit, because I don't think he knew what he was doing. And he just comes off. He just comes off very flat. There is like absolutely zero chemistry between him and him and Ellen. Uh, uh, or who am I thinking of? Ellen. Diane, Diane, Diane Lane. Thank you. Yeah, I, he's got a little more chemistry with Amy Madigan, which is weird because this is supposed this is, to yeah. be the legendary lost love that brings him back to town. Right. He's got pretty good uh, uh, chemistry with his sister too. I thought. In yeah, fact, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some yeah. of his best scenes are with Deborah Van Valkenburg. Was it Riva? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, Riva, who, yeah, who's uh, sort of a, a Hill irregular. Um, right. She was in yeah. The Warriors. Yeah. 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 There's, I mean, there's, there's got to be some people who are like the Walter Hill players. Yeah. My favorite Walter Hill movie is Hard Times, which is another oh, one sure. that's very deglamorized and where he works to set up the world of, of the movie that he's making. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like, look at, look at, look at that movie with uh, uh, Charles Bronson. Sort of a stone-faced cipher, you know, but he has something there that he can pull that off. And, you know, Michael Paré just didn't have it. And I, not at that point. Not at that point. And, you know, they also play, in the, play Tom Cody in the movie. They uh, interviewed Eric Roberts, oh, Tom, wow. Tom Cruise, and Patrick Swayze. Oh, they wanted to, They wanted Tom Cruise, but he was already committed to something else and couldn't be in it. I I'd have to say I mean Swayze would be interesting but I don't yeah, know if he could stone face it enough. Yeah, I don't know. I mean I I love him. Roadhouse is one of my absolute favorites of favorites. Absolutely. But, but I wow, him like the Skate Town USA era Patrick yeah, Swayze right. as <laughs> as Tom Cody. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, I don't know. Eric Roberts would be interesting. No fool. Eric Roberts would be very cool. Very cool. I think. I yeah, think yeah. he would have uh, uh, just enough smarm and enough toughness and a, a little uh, yeah, irreverence yeah. that that he could display the different facets. Right. The the thing about Tom Cody is you've got to be you got to know what he's thinking and feeling, but he right. can't show it to you. Right. And that's a lot to ask of anybody. Yeah. Right. Well, it didn't help that. Um, you know, in, in interviews later, he was, uh, Perret was revealing things about how pissed off he was permanently on that set because of, uh, Rick Moranis needling him. Oh, yeah. 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 Like, if Rick Moranis asked me, so do you just look cool or are you actually cool? I just, I would have to give him this straight dead eyeball and go, I don't even look cool, Mr. Moranis. <laughs> Well, I know because um, it was in a meeting with uh, Joel Silver, and I'm sure Moranis was probably doing his uh, Jerry Siegel character from his SCTV days where he's playing the uh, producer. And so, uh, 
you know, he's probably just trying to give him give him some crap, and and Perry didn't know how to deal with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, when when people are joking, and if you have the wrong reaction, they can fire you. That's well, sure. gotta be tough. Sure. Yeah. I yeah. I just think it it was bad expectations all around, <laughs> right? <laughs> and poorly poorly managed because uh, Moranis wasn't happy either. Yeah. Uh, as as great as he is in this role, uh, which is very unusual uh, casting for him, um, he was you know he was not happy having to stick to a script that. Let's be honest. Some of the dialogue is a little weirdly phrased. Yeah. That's, that's another thing yeah. too. If you if you read up on the production stories, everybody's like, "This script really stinks." It's like, "Don't worry, we're going to save it with the visuals. It's going to be great." And it's like, yeah, "Okay." Oh my god, were they about to fix it in post? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> See, to me, here we go, Sean. Cue up. Cue up the toe. Oh, God. I did take a specific screenwriting class when I was getting my film studies degree at okay. Eastern Michigan University. And they one of the things we were told is you can never have the character say exactly what they're feeling. They can never say... They can't be too on the nose, was what they kept saying. Right. Like, That's too on the nose. You have to angle into it. You can't have them say, that makes me angry because I feel betrayed. They, It, it has to ease into it. And it has to slide in. And in this movie, it, I, and it had to be intentional, all of the dialogue is super on the nose. Right. It's a lot of telling and not showing because yes. I think they realized Perry couldn't pull it off. <laughs> That's that's entirely possible too, and you don't know for sure. So, like I said, I feel like I'm ragging on the guy. I like the guy because yeah. like, we're all we're all. I was so have... happy to see him in Bone Tomahawk for a couple of minutes, right? And even happier that none of the really ghastly stuff happened to him. In I know Bone it's Tomahawk. like we're, we're always going to have Moon Forty Four and the Philadelphia Experiment and Ninja Cheerleaders, but <laughs> you know, you're making fire. that up. No, I'm not making that up. And, wow. uh, yeah. And, but then, like they said, the rest of the cast is kind of amazing. Yeah. In yes. this movie. Everybody is. I mean, from, you know, like even these little minor characters, they're just great. And I think they do enough to overcompensate for his uh, inexperience. How's that? Yeah. yeah. And, and he does have a great line. And maybe it's Ed Begley Jr. and Rick Moranis helping him in the scene, but yep. there's this filthy homeless dude who shows up out of nowhere and starts right. them. And he gives them the information they're looking for because somebody in these stories always gives you the information you're looking for. Tom Cody turns to Billy Fish and goes, pay him. And Billy Fish is like, I'm not going to pay this guy. What are you talking about? And then Cody just gives him the eye and goes, listen, head. Either you give him some of your money, or I'll give him some of your money. <laughs> and I have to say, as he's wandering off, hearing Rick Moranis mutter, don't call me head. I am a yeah. <laughs> It's just fantastic. Yeah, hearing him swear is amazing. <laughs> and and uh he you know, he's playing this rich this this prosperous guy who's going to become a millionaire managing Ellen Aim and he knows that he's a twerp and that he actually cannot do the thing that he needs to do to get her back 
So he's just got this massive case of short man's disease. Right. But he's also a realist enough that like when he's told, no, no, you're coming along because I don't know the streets and the battery and you do like he's, he realizes that, yes, he's got to go along with it. And to be fair, I mean, the battery's terrifying, and he went anyway. Yep. He's got some guts. Yeah, he's got some stones. You know, he comes back in the car, and so, yeah. And uh, and McCoy, like I said, she does most of the heavy lifting oh, in, yeah. uh, in the battery rescue. And yeah. Amy Madigan is just great in oh, that. Yeah. I, just, I love her. It's like, you're not my type. I love it. Hey, Cody. Your name, right, Cody? Yeah. You got a spare bed? You want a quick tumble, huh? <laughs> uh, you may have a rough time with this one, and I don't want to hurt your feelings, but uh, you're not my type. Yeah, I guess kind of figures. I ain't had much luck with women lately. Yeah, well, you'll live. Something tells me that getting girls isn't exactly your problem in life. Maybe some other time, huh? I doubt it, but anything's possible. Hey, look. I've got the spare bed. I'm just passing through this district. I don't know anybody. I'm between jobs, and last time I heard, hotels cost money. Get in. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, they, they never come right out and say it. And for a movie that's so on the nose about so many things, it's sure. great. Like, I don't think... I think it was maybe the third time I saw it where the light bulb went on. It's like... Oh, yeah. she digs chicks. Got, Got it. it. <laughs> uh, because, you know, when she says, well, that was before I was a soldier. Like, okay. Yeah. You know, she she drops hints. <laughs> but yeah. she doesn't come, you know, right out and explicitly say, no, dude, not a chance for reasons. <laughs> There's not enough beer in the world, Spleen. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, like I said, she's great. Driving the bus. And, and, uh, yes. Oh, yeah. And uh, Willem Dafoe as Raven Shattuck. I mean, he's oh, absolutely yeah. terrifying. And I want that haircut. I want the duck <laughs> yeah. that looks like a cobra's hood so bad. Yeah, this might and be I, my favorite William Dafoe performance. I, I, I think, yeah, he's great. Yeah, yeah. he had the, and, and the exact uh, right pitch of, you know, just how much scenery to chew. It was, right. yes. it was dead on. And and he does that misunderstood delinquent thing that, like, we got a little bit yeah. of that in The Hitchhiker, the movie that we just watched uh, a little bit ago, where, where he's like, I'm not such a bad guy. Here's how we're going to do this. You know, we fall in love for a couple of weeks. I'll let you go. It'll work out. Like, he's that's the extent that his sociopathic personality can try to get sympathy from someone by saying... Well, I'm not going to kill you. And yeah. you just, you know, we're going to fall in love for a couple of weeks. And like, I don't think that's going to go real well for Ellen. Not, <laughs> not, not really. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. It's a really nasty uh, premise there. And one of the startling things about the movie, uh, and it might be one of the things that, that, caused it not to succeed is you expect a movie like this to be oh okay they form the posse to go get her and there's going to be a climactic fight and they get her well they they go and get her and then later there's a climactic fight right so right. it's there's there's about it's it's really made up of lots of little bits of movies because it's got the ending from Casablanca right 
<laughs> you know, the the two the two comrades in arms go off for their own adventures and the girl goes with the guy that's better for her. Yep. Uh so, you know, the the part where they're on the run is just a different type of film there for a minute and that's that might have hurt its chances too is it doesn't really play like it knows what kind of movie it wants to be every 25 minutes or so it's a reasonable facsimile of about 36 different genres (laughs) trying to you know crammed into one because I said it's a it's a high school romance movie. It's it like I said it's a western. It's a biker flick for about five minutes. It's a post apocalyptic, uh, you know, something. You know, and mm-hmm. <laughs> and it all and works. <laughs> well, remember, it's from another time, another place, True. which is a great setting. Yeah, uh, and the more we learn about it, the more interesting it is. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I, it's an the, alternate the timeline from when Martin like, Fly screwed up. <laughs> but some of it's like from the 30s too, like right. the, the trench coat that Tom Cody wear. Like he's got the duster coat and suspenders and a work shirt, where it could be anywhere from about 1880 to 1935. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's a sleeveless work shirt, which looks redonkulous when he takes the coat off for the first fight scene. Yes, right? but but he makes it work. It's yeah. it's you know the diner looks 90% like you'd expect a diner to look like. The uh, yeah, the yeah. concert hall is a concert hall. You know the crummy bar is a big crummy bar, but it's a big crummy bar that has like a side room for people to store files. There's like a file cabinet in there in in one of the scenes. And I'm not sure I get that. Pedal pushers and bobby socks and you know, poodle skirts. It's 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 argyle sweaters. Yeah, and it's all actually, actually. yeah. And the lower hip waders. Yeah, yeah. The tunic made from rubber hip waiter garbage bags. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's it's strange. But Bill Paxton gets that uh, that pompadour that lets oh, me yeah. know what would happen if I tried to grow my hair. In <laughs> so. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for letting me know not to try that. Thanks but, for taking oh one for my. the team. Yeah, how, <laughs> yeah, about, and, yeah let's, how about a big round of applause for Bill Paxson just for being there to get punched in the face. Oh, my, oh God. my God, it's, yes. And it was like the third time I saw it before I realized he's punched in the face in the opening sequence. <laughs> but he's the only guy who tries to do anything to yeah. help. Like, the audience runs. Billy Fish gets literally thrown off the stage when he yells at a guy. And it's the second in command biker that takes out Bill Paxton. Yep. yep. It's and and Lee Ving looks horrifyingly muscular in this. <laughs> yeah. Lee Ving looks like he's about ready to hulk out and just his neck veins continue. Yeah. Like in a couple in only a couple of years uh in clue, he looks he looks kind of, you know bloated. Dissipated. But yeah. here it's like Man, he's gonna break me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this this is very definitely the guy who can't think his way to the top of the biker gang. <laughs> but but by God, he's useful when somebody needs to get broken in half. <laughs> you can point him at somebody and pull the trigger and say, "Go!" And, yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Yep. yep. Leaving. Smash. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Diane Lane, I mean, honestly, she gets, like, she gets to lip-sync four songs, yell at Tom Cody, and and get angry because he took money to save her. And uh, we can take uh, It Happened One Night as another movie that this, this simulates, because it's got the, <laughs> I'm just paying my expenses <laughs> ending. Yeah. 
Let's say, yeah, I, she was I, only, what, she's only 18 at the time? Yeah. Yeah, she was 18 or 19 when it filmed. Right. And, uh, oh, I can't remember the actress's name, but she uh, plays Baby Doll. And she was like 16. So they, okay. they did, uh, they had to do a lot of stuff to get around California's child labor laws. Uh, there's, there's a film clip about that. Yeah. That was Elizabeth Daly. Well, yes, that's, that's one of the things that that didn't help it any because, you know, costs mount when you do ridiculous things like right. have to block off all of the daylight to, <laughs> to don't shoot in Chicago. Let's rebuild Chicago. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah there, there you go. And then tearing yeah. down, tearing down the the stadium. Uh, the yeah, be the venue before finding out we they have to reshoot that scene with a different song <laughs> and rebuild the entire thing. It's That's like, right. I think that this was a little bit too much for him. <laughs> every to have so often, bitten off at this point in his career. Every, every so often, something gets cursed. Yes. I mean, there's a reason that it eventually got that two-disc Blu-ray with, uh, you know, five hours of bonus features. And there's a reason that only about, I don't know, 3,000 people in the world are going to buy that. <laughs> I I have a shirt that says 15,000. I got mine! Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got my Blu-ray. 15,000 Joe Meek fans can't be wrong. And that's kind of how I feel about this movie. It's like... <laughs> There's a certain kind of person that will fall in love with this movie, and then there's a certain kind of person that will begrudgingly watch it. <laughs> and then a whole bunch of other people just won't like it at all. <laughs> I will say I will say that when we were watching it this weekend, when he said, This is one of Tim's, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Why would you ask that question? <laughs> Tell her that I can always make her watch Telstar, the Joe Meek story, if I'm feeling sassy. Uh, we we haven't really touched on this part of it yet, and, and it's such a big part of the movie that I want to mention the soundtrack. Oh, sure. Okay. Uh, I think it's like this time I, I worked up this sort of half-baked theory. Like when they're in the Richmond, it's that new wave slash Jim Steinman operatic super pop. Yeah. And when we're at Torchy's, it's the blasters playing, you know, greasy skillet rockabilly. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and uh, when, when we meet the Sorrells, they're going from one district to another and they're like, New wave doo wop, doo wop. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that that it's not just another time, another place. It's that each place that we see, each location that we're going to, there's a different type of music, so that we can we can realize like, okay, well we're we've gone away from the place where they've got two Barry saxes playing at the same time. Now we're in New Wave Land where they're shooting a music video of everybody walking on the street, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to put this out there, okay. and I'm going to speak for Chad. Okay. When I say that I believe that you are in alignment with me, that the uh, the rockabilly music is the best. I don't know, man. I always really love it when uh, Jim Steinman make, commits like felonious assault on a keyboard. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> If there was a keytar in the blasters. I know. 
I, I will also say that it's a lot of really juvenile fun to sing Wombat Stud to One Bad <laughs> Stud. <laughs> it's like, that song really needs a hook, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I I quite like the Blasters. Like, they're they're yeah. a really cool band. Yep. Uh, but, yeah, for me, it's, it's that super operatic, you know, throw every production t- technique in the world Jim Steinman stuff that I really dig. Right. Uh, but no, the Blasters, I mean, they take the silver medal, but they take the silver medal to, you know, the best cacophony ever. <laughs> well, let's make, me- let, yeah, let's make mention of the uh, the uh, dancer, too, in the middle of all that. At first, I thought she was the same that, uh, that played um, oh, End of Ghostbusters. Oh, oh Gozer. yeah, yeah, Gozer, Gozer, Gozer. Gozer. Yeah, I thought she was the same that played Gozer. Uh, but well, they got the no, same they haircut. were just the same type of build and yeah, kind yeah. of haircut. Well, that's 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 like a real dancer's build instead of a Hollywood dancer's. Build. Exactly. Right. Her, sure yeah, her name is. Uh, I'm sorry. Her her name was Maureen Jahan, and she was the stunt dance double for Jennifer Beals in Flashdance. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And and there's this like some of the choreography for that is hysterical. There's a part where she's like slapping everyone's caps off while she's strutting down the stage. Yeah. Or bar. I'm not sure if it's just that she's dancing on the bar. But like for some reason, I love that. That she's yep. like, oh, you guys are all so tough, huh? There's your hat. There's your hat. There's your hat. There's your hat. Just swat, 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 duck, duck, goose. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that might have been what it was. That's the another time, another place version of duck, duck, goose. <laughs> there's, uh, there's also the, the soundtrack, which I mean, yes. granted, most of it is just, uh, music that is part of the scene. But uh, there's also other stuff. Like I am, I, I'm going to say this because I want to admit how embarrassed I am that it took like four times for me to catch this. That <laughs> that when Raven and his gang show up for for the mallet fight, their uh, the soundtrack is playing uh, Link Ray's Rumble, uh, performed by someone else. But yeah, Ray Cooter. Yeah, and it's, it's yeah. like reasonable facsimile of Rumble. <laughs> Yes, yeah. and I was like, but, but oh, like, you know, perfect. your attention, please. The juvenile delinquent song is now playing. Right. Yes, yeah. <laughs> well, and yeah, it's so uh, perfectly named. It's like, oh, Rumble. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, I, I know uh, earlier in the movie too. Like one of my favorite music snippets from the film is when uh, when Reva is sending the message to Tom, and he's coming in on the train, and you kind of got that Bo Diddley riff going. I think that was. That was yeah. Cool. Yes. And then uh, it's that's sort of... I think it's called Bomber Blast or okay. Bomber. And then and then like and then when he starts beating up on the guys, it kind of morphs into Chuck Berry's Johnny Be Good a little bit. Again, yeah. reasonable yeah, yeah, yeah. reasonable facsimiles of both songs. But he said, yeah, I just love those bits. You know, just the the instrumental stuff is really good too. Yeah, the score is great, and they also do these like tinkling wind chime noises from time to time. Okay, that absolutely don't fit in with anything else in the film. <laughs> so, so we've got Jim Steinman, the Blasters. Uh, we've got Ry Cooter doing like blues, like like Bo Diddley beat blues yep. as yep. the score, and then occasionally. Uh, somebody knocks over an entire display shelf of wind chimes. Right. <laughs> it is so great. It is so great. It is. It's just so many different, like, 
uh, we were joking earlier before we started taping about a director whose whose entire vision was just, well, let's do lots of shots of things. In this, the score is like everything that's possibly cool other than harmonica from a Western being lumped <laughs> into one big thing. Right. <laughs> I think that's why I love it so much is because it is cram-packed with, yep. with cool things. It doesn't gel. But no, it kind of doesn't need to (laughs) Yeah, give it 10 minutes. It's going to try something else to win you over. And maybe you'll like that a little better. Maybe you won't. Yeah. 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 Because because they were trying to get the Springsteen song, right? Yeah. 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 And they even shot the ending with that song. And then suddenly the boss says, no, you can't have it. And so they had to scramble and Steinman wrote. uh, So tonight is the night we know what, what it means to be young. What it take two days? Yeah, that, yeah, days? something like that. <laughs> That's a great in. song for two days. It is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and then they had to also, rebuild the set uh, and reshoot it. Yeah, and, and reshoot it. And I, I also love the way they shoot the audience, where it's like this backlit silhouette of everybody clapping their hands above right. their heads. That's so striking. Yeah, I kept having the Elvis on tour flashbacks for that. You know, you get that, <laughs> the strobe going and all the, yeah, it's just, it's fantastic. We've talked about pretty much everybody who's got a, a lead or a, a secondary performance. Uh, I, I want to talk for just a sec about Rick Moranis's costuming in this. Okay. Cause he's wearing like a plaid bow tie a diagonally striped shirt and like a, a houndstooth blazer or something like that. It's all, everybody else is wearing like plain stuff. The bikers are all in black leather. Uh, Tom Cody's got like a tan coat, tan pants and a blue shirt. And he's wearing like three clashing plaids. And, and they all look, you know, tailor made and customized and everything, but they also just make him look like a complete twerp. Again. You know, I swear, I think I read somewhere that they consulted with Giorgio Armani on that. Oh, for the costume designs for like a future from another time and another place. Yeah, you know, where it's okay and, to wear three classic plans. Yeah, but <laughs> but that's the thing is like he's so out of place in yeah. the Battery and in the Richmond, but he's so self possessed at the same time. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, somewhere somebody hopefully did a cosplay of this. Well, there's a there's a great moment where you get to see how he, uh, how he is actually effective when the police stop the the tour bus that they've stolen. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and he just he's just like basically you know cuts through all of the bull. He's like, okay, how much? <laughs> It just bribes the police to let him through the line, and it's like, what yeah, the f- and it almost, almost works, works. not, not quite. Well, because he's not the hero, so he ha- he can't have a plan work because that's not how that goes in the movies. Doesn't he show up in the final fight too and get like punched in the face again or something before Tom Cody shows up? Doesn't he like run up and say, "Get out of here," and then leave? Yeah, him, yeah, like, and then gets like shoved again. down by yeah. leaving again. Yeah. And how yeah. great is it the 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 kind of minor character arc that you get with bill paxton's character where oh in yeah the, in the start he tries to stop the bikers by himself and loses a tooth at the end he sees them come runs away and you think yeah chicken he comes back with like a mob armed yeah. with rifles and shotguns <laughs> And and of course they all cock the rifles in sync. That was just so like, great. A wreck. 
check. And they're all pointing at the bikers. And, and Lee Vang just looks at him for a second and goes, let's get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's a realist. The yep. movie didn't need to end with, you know, a massive gunfight. It ends with the bikers going, no. No. Not this time. Okay. So, yeah, let's talk. Yeah. Can we talk about that fight for a minute? Oh, God. Oh, yes, please. Okay. Certainly. More than a minute? <laughs> Stop. Hammer fight. <laughs> yeah. It's like everybody's bringing guns to a sledgehammer fight. But, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. It's just. And like I said, it was, I think they said. That last, was their like, second choice. Uh, the, the sledgehammer duel was their second choice. Okay. Originally, uh, Tom Cody was going to stab Raven. Okay. Possibly with the butterfly knife he stole at the beginning, possibly just with a knife, okay. and kill him. But but it was decided they were trying to get it cut down from R to PG. Okay. So the you know the fight has a couple of people get bloody noses. Oh, sure. uh, but that's like when they're wailing on each other with sledgehammer mallets, like uh, railroad spike mallets. Yeah. So I love it too. Uh, the fight lasts like four minutes, and it took four weeks to shoot. Yes! Just, yeah, that's crazy. That's some Jackie Chan level wonderfulness. <laughs> two weeks with principals, two weeks with stuntmen. I just think that's crazy. The fight ends with uh, basically Defoe get, trying to gather himself, and then he just walks up and pushes him over. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's I like, think that's and, and you can see him decide not to cave his skull in. He's like, right. I don't need to kill this guy, and I certainly don't need a murder rap. But I, but I'm certainly gonna beat him. It's the best <laughs> moment of acting in the entire film, and a candidate, a strong candidate for any film. That moment when Raven thinks he's going to die, yes. and that Willem Dafoe lip quiver. Oh yeah! <laughs> oh my God! Oh, yes. Yep. yep. Yeah, because like in in you know movie land where where these stories take place, you know the bikers are juvenile delinquents. So, you know, Willem Dafoe was probably like 25 or 30 playing 19. Yeah. Right. And, you know, some 19-year-old punk kid who's been in charge of his gang of goofballs suddenly realizing that the game has real and immediate consequences, watching his lip tremble like that is is amazing. <laughs> and it's it's again, it's people, you know, putting this into the film. They're they're adding something to the narrative by, you know, making choices about the character. How would they react like this? How would they react like that? Right. And again, it's Walter Hill excels at fight scenes and as I said, that's the best part of the movie. Yeah. Is oh, that fight scene yeah. At the end. So, yeah. So. Yeah. And and it leads to one man against one man, where it's again that, you know, that sort of Nietzschean action movie. Sure. Thing of, I, am, I am the superior man who can inflict his will on the situation. Unfortunately, the superior man loses. And- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you know, Willem Dafoe got to play Jesus later, so there's that. I mean, it's true. <laughs> yeah. Heck, he's in the Life Aquatic. That's the Green Goblin, dude. Yeah. Yeah. And and Willem Dafoe is like one of the few actors that could make Will Meet Again Spider-Man into yeah. like a death threat. But yeah, it just, and it's all these, like, Michael Paré aside, I mean, everybody in this film has pretty much gone on to do a ton. Yep. And, and even Michael Paré had, you know, he had his, his plateau, his dip, and then he's had kind of a renaissance yeah. in the last few years. He was so, almost a thing, and this movie killed yeah. it. So. Yeah. 
Well, I I think it was a joint attack. Sure, sure. I think his performance in this movie and and his performance in this movie. Yeah, he's one of those like, comfort zones guys. You get him out of his comfort yeah. zone and so. it just doesn't work. But it's again, I mean, you're being told to play this character who's not from our timeline, right? So, you know, and then I I I have to think the first day on wardrobe, it was like no sleeves and suspenders, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, player. <laughs> you know, I remember when this came out, and I was so excited and wanted to see it, and w- wasn't able to go see it because it it died a horrible, quick death. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, and all all of the all of the record shelves in places like uh, Meyer and and things like that were just full of the 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 many 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 unsold copies of the soundtrack. <laughs> well, I remember seeing the 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 review on the Siskel and Ebert at the movies, and I remember Ebert liked it. Siskel hated it, but Siskel hated everything. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, and so I was like, yeah, I think I'd like to see it. But again, it was here and it was gone. Yeah, I I was ten when it came out. I think eight or ten, and uh, eighty four. I would have been nine. I I saw the poster at the video store, but I was never aware of right. it coming out as a movie that I can remember. And and it's got that great kind of woodcut painting art style. Sure. Yes. And and the slogan tonight is what it means to be young, which. You know, I was young. I was like, what the heck does that even mean when I was looking at it? Yeah, and the film is tailor-made for, like, the MTV generation, which was just blowing up then. And yeah. it's like, how could this fail? And yet it well, did. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's my a, for reasons we've discussed. <laughs> yeah, my favorite joke about Hollywood is that everybody wants to be the second one to do something fresh. Okay. This was something fresh, but it didn't catch on. If it did there would have been a dozen, you know, movies influenced by it one way or another that all all came out and we'd all be like, oh, right, that's that's got to be from someone who dug yeah. Streets of Fire. And also there's that trap. It's like when you try to make a cult movie, right. it doesn't work. Cult movies happen. They're not made. You know, it's that kind right. of thing. But cult sometimes it catches are, up. are the afterlife for a movie that that people love. Right. Because, like, you could lump this in. Like, Buckaroo Banzai, it bombed when it first came out, too. Oh, yeah. But now it's like, you know, people love Hardcore. it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, they, they wrapped up B-Fest with it a couple of years ago. And uh, during the end credits where they do the whole power walk thing, nice. I led a couple dozen people around the auditorium. <laughs> Perfect. My friend Scott actually introduced this one to me in high school. He just said, oh, you've never seen that? You like crazy weird movies? And I was like, okay, let's see how fell in love with it instantly. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. Same yeah. story. Yep, basically. It's like, I see the flaws, I embrace the flaws, I am cool with the flaws. Let's roll. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no time to explain. Get in the car. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Turn the what? radio up. Sledgehammer fight? Okay. <laughs> hey, that's Bill Paxton. Oh, there he goes. <laughs> Kapow. <laughs> yeah. God, if they ever show this at B-Fest, somebody has to be Bill Paxton and somebody <laughs> has to punch him out a couple of times. No, Bill Paxton. I think he only... <laughs> Gets knocked out twice. Bill Paxton punch count. <laughs> yeah. Just like KO Paxton one. KO Paxton two. And that surly look the next time he sees McCoy. <laughs> Which is kind of justified. I would not be thrilled to have to pour drinks for someone who clocked me. <laughs> 
He's and it's the kind of movie where She's you can paid. punch out the bartender and nobody loots the bar. You're like the only person who did anything after that. <laughs> it, there's a, a romantic comedy called While You Were Sleeping that like the people in it react only the ways that people in movies react to things, oh, not the way an actual sure. person would. Yep. And and that to me is kind of Streets of Fire. Like it's it's so much aware of its own existence as a movie. Mm-hmm. It the people act like movie people. They don't act like people people. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> and dear listeners, I I certainly hope you're tempted to try and check it out on Netflix or something to see what the Sam Hill we're even talking about. It's a reasonable facsimile of a movie-watching experience. <laughs> I just want to correct. It's not Sam Hill. It's Walter Hill. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, my God. I feel so bad I did not make that joke. What in the Sam Hill are you talking about? What in the Walter Hill's going on here? <laughs> Before the spiral's completely out of control again. <laughs> Let's move on to film clips. Uh, sounds good to me. Where we throw out some facts that didn't quite fit into the general stream of conversation. <laughs> the part of McCoy was originally written as an overweight man named Mendez. Amy Madigan lobbied successfully for the part after reading for Riva, Tom's sister. The part was renamed and rewritten for her. The dancer at Torchies is played by Marine Jahan, who was the body double for Jennifer Beals in Flashdance. Uh, this film is named after a Bruce Springsteen song that was meant to be on the soundtrack, but the boss refused to let it be covered by another artist for the movie. Because some of the actors were young enough to be subject to child labor laws, the night scenes were largely shot in the daytime with a world record-sized tarp that cost $1.2 million covering the outdoor sets. Twelve Studebakers from the model years 1950 and 1951 were used as the police cars in this film. Michael Eisner, who was a genius in eyesight, rejected the screenplay when he was head of production of Paramount, saying it was too similar to Indiana Jones. The what? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that that's the real reason, but that's the one he gave. <laughs> Indiana Jones and the Rock and Roll Fable. <laughs> The end fight between Tom Cody and Raven took four weeks to shoot. Half of that time was spent filming the actors, and the other half was spent shooting their stunt doubles. Robert Townsend, the writer, director, actor, producer, social activist whose debut film Hollywood Shuffle was covered earlier this year on the Fiasco Brothers Watch a Movie, plays one of the Sorrells. He has one line of dialogue in this He movie. did? Where was it? <laughs> it's... Whoa! Okay. When the cop car gets blown up. Okay. I thought it was a SAG thing, and like he couldn't pay him. You don't, have, you don't have no line. You wouldn't have to pay as much. So. Yeah, I, I think it just got edited out. Although okay. he did, uh, he made a movie called The Five Heartbeats about a, a doo-wop group. So I hope right. he enjoyed every second of being a Sorrel. Okay. Uh, let's see. E.J. Daly, the actress who plays Baby Doll, has gone on to considerable success, success as a voiceover artist. Among her roles are Cherry on PB's Playhouse. Buttercup on the Powerpuff Girls, and Tommy Pickles from Rugrats. I knew she sounded familiar. <laughs> Tonight is What It Means to Be Young was written in two days by Jim Steinman after Walter Hill realized that the film was not going to secure the rights to Bruce Springsteen's Streets of Fire. 
Although the movie didn't make much of an impact on pop culture in America, it was hugely influential in Japan, with the setting and style inspiring the arcade game Final Fight and the animated series Bubblegum Crisis. Bubblegum Crisis. <laughs> <laughs> Write that down. Uh, cinematographer Andrew Laszlo shot each district differently to show that the characters were in different places as the story progressed. Producer Joel Silver, after seeing the first weekend grosses for the movie, declared, Tonight is what it means to be dead. <laughs> Flawless victory. <laughs> Screenwriter, <laughs> Screenwriter Larry Gross claims, with some justification, that Robocop and Seven are movies whose cityscapes and cinematography were influenced by Streets of Fire. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Seven's another one of those, you know, it's an ever-city. They never say where it is, and there's never enough, like, landmarks that you could say, oh, it's New York, oh, it's Boston, whatever. It's just skyscrapers and rain. Sure. Yeah. Desolate. Yeah, hellscape. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Reasonable facsimile, sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Diners with the windows blown out. Yeah. That's what Streets of Fire was missing at Ed 209. There we go. The train conductor is played by Lynn Thigman, instantly recognizable as the radio DJ from Walter Hill's The Warriors, as well as the iconic voice of the Chief on the Carmen Sandiego game show on PBS. There is a Telugu-language Bollywood remake of Streets of Fire called Two Town Rowdy. Woo! I desperately would like to see Two Town Rowdy (laughs) with English subtitles. Rick Moranis was supposedly unhappy during filming because he was not allowed to improvise his dialogue. I think it would have helped. Yeah, you know, some yeah. of his lines is like, who wrote this? But yeah, I think it would have helped. And finally, this film was supposed to be the first part of a trilogy with the second and third movies to be called The Far City and Cody's Return. Those were never made, but Albert Piyun, oh God, made a universally <laughs> reviled sequel in 2008 called Road to Hell. Both Michael Perry and Deborah Von Valkenberg are in Road to Hell. You guys seen it? No. Nope. No, me neither. Nope. You you <laughs> could not pay me enough to watch that. Nope. Bill Gates could. You can't. <laughs> nope. <laughs> None That's for me, thanks. Enough. I'm driving. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's Film Clips. You're listening to the Prescribed Films Podcast Network, home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment. The shows on this network all have a common goal, providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media. The PFPN hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy. Visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com. Thanks for listening. As is our our custom, we put out a a request and said, Hey, Fiasco friends, what's a movie you recommend that has an actor playing against type in honor of Rick Moranis, incredibly mean guy in Streets of Fire? Bill Smiley says, The iconic example, Henry Fonda as the ruthless killer for hire in Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West.
I still need to see that. It is good. Mm. No, he's very good. Me too. Yeah. Uh, Jacob McLaughlin adds, Charlie Chaplin playing a man who marries and murders women for their money so that he can support his family in Monsieur Vudeau. Jesus, hell. (gasps) Yeah, it's a good movie. I didn't care for it, but I said I admit it's good. It's just it did not appeal to me. Sometimes it's not your flavor. Right. Uh, Adam Clark of It's Just a Show, uh, part of our scaritage. Jeffrey Combs is a sensitive, caring superhero with a moral compass and a deep sense of loyalty as the titular Dr. Mordred. Possibly the only movie where Combs gets the girl and lives. I mean, he kind of gets Barbara Crampton in from beyond, but uh, he turns into a goo monster and blows up. I agree. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Dr. Mordred is fantastic. I actually met Jeffrey Combs at a Comic-Con. And that's all we talked about for however long 40 bucks will get you. We talked about Dr. Mordred. <laughs> He's got to be really happy to answer Dr. Mordred questions from time to time. Yeah, he was quoting from the movie. It was great. Well, it's still the best Dr. Strange movie. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, Eric J. Peterson says, Love in a 45 with Jeffrey Combs playing a drug-fueled crazy hick hitman. <laughs> He's also proud of the film and still promotes it to this day, which is nice. It's one of those 90s indie films that is a rural crime flick featuring a number of cult actors and a few up-and-coming actors. It's also got a solid 90s alternative soundtrack. And breaking his chain of movies I've never heard of, I have actually heard of this one. (laughs) I've never seen it, but I've heard of it. (laughs) I think I've seen it, but I don't remember. But you haven't heard of it. Well, I've had... (laughs) Get this man a drink! (laughs) I was there, I saw it, couldn't tell you what happened. Yeah. Uh, Don't ask me to hum the theme song, but, you know, we got a a Jeffrey Combs double feature in there. There you go. Uh, Dennis Lisey says, quite simply, Andy Griffith, a face in the crowd. You know, that might be your winner-winner chicken dinner there, because he is an outright bastard in that movie. Oh, yeah? Oh, he's completely evil. Yep. It's kind of wonderful. Holy... (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's it's yeah uh that's a billy wilder one isn't it uh, uh maybe <laughs> maybe <laughs> or who who directed ace in the hole was that's that billy, wilder. billy wilder that's billy wilder. yeah i think that was billy wilder on his angriest day <laughs> i'm looking it up let's see face in the crowd elite Ilya Kazan did Face in the Crowd. Oh, yeah. Oh, well. Then suddenly, I'm less interested. No, it's it's okay. It's it's good. Uh, Lisa Marie Babic, Helen Mirren as the ruthless killer in Red. I want to marry her when I grow up. You know. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. We all do. <laughs> we all do. <laughs> Dave Thomas, our man in Hemel Hempstead, says there's a no budget action movie called Rays, starring Zoe Bell which is also noteworthy for having Doug Jones playing just a regular dude without makeup. <laughs> I didn't recognize him because he didn't have 24 pounds of makeup on. Oh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hillary Braley suggests The Dark Knight, Heath Ledger as the Joker, and The Cell, Vince Vaughn as a relatively normal cop. Yeah, there's, there's one really funny joke uh, cinematically in The Cell. When they're in the dreamscape, like Vincent D'Onofrio has this 20 mile long velvet cape and uh, Jennifer Lopez's psychologist character is wearing like this ornate fetish gown. And then he's uh, Vince Vaughn shows up and he's just wearing like dockers and a polo shirt. 
<laughs> like his self-image is such that he's still normal, even in this intensely Baroque fantasy land. And I loved that. Man, I don't even remember that movie. I know I saw it and it had like spectacular imagery and that's, that's it. That's <laughs> yeah. Well, it was uh, Tarsum Singh, right? Maybe. Could be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Gumprich says, my man Bogart playing an undead zombie in The Return of Dr. X. Yes. A definite departure from his usual, at the time, gangster roles. Yeah, I just wrote that up for Hubis Reen, and uh, yeah, Jack oh, Warner really yeah. took a dump on Bogart for that one. <laughs> he really did. He really, really did. So. Uh, Jason Bollinger of Attack of the Killer Podcast. I know the first time I saw Neil Patrick Harris in Harold and Kumar, I was pretty blown away with his performance. I mean, he was freaking Doogie Howser. Now he's playing himself, in quotes, as a partying womanizing guy. It was so over the top. I found it so dang funny. Okay. And, I, and yeah. Okay, did uh, did Undercover Brother come out before Harold and Kumar? Because if you never yes. you never seen Undercover Brother, he's hilarious in that, too. Sort of playing. Oh, does, doesn't he go on like a kung fu rampage? He, he pulls a guy's heart a out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not a sissy. Whack! <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Both are great, but like I said, I think Undercover yes. Brother came first. But anyway, I I'm almost positive it did because it was based on like a web cartoon. Okay, and Harold and Kumar was not. Okay. Yeah. Uh, also, if we're talking Neil Patrick Harris briefly, I hope this isn't either of your suggestions, but the, uh, the, fa- the psychic fascist officer, space marine officer in Starship Troopers is also deeply, deeply against type. I, I can't remember who called it this, but they said Doogie Himmler SS. Oh, it hurts. Oh, that's funny. Oh. <laughs> Moving along. <laughs> Joe Ruggaber gives us Jack Lemon in The Great Race. Instead of the humorous everyman he usually plays, here he's the snidely whiplash-esque <laughs> Professor Fate, chewing the scenery at every turn. I do love some good scenery chewing. <laughs> Live action. Yeah, I wish that... Oh, the, the editing in The Great Race kind of murders most of the jokes that they're doing, but... But yeah, Jack Lemon's pretty, pretty wonderful. Uh, and uh, Melissa Kirscher also says, you know, doubling the recommendation for Jack Lemon in The Great Race because he gets even more extra when he gets to play a second role in the same movie simply so he can choose scenery twice as fast. <laughs> for the yeah. Great Race. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, there, uh, Peter Falk is his Igor. And, That's right. And at one point, they're like stuck on an ice flow, and Igor accidentally breaks off half of Professor Fate's mustache, trying to wake him up or something. <laughs> and he's got coffee brewed. He's like, "Rise and shine, boss!" And you get to hear Jack Lemon just go nuts and go, "Rise and shine, rise and shine." <laughs> it is unlike any other Jack Lemon performance. <laughs> Okay, and uh, Tim Haralome, uh, Walter Brennan playing an abusive snake of a father in My Darling Clementine is a revelation. I also enjoy the BFI's number one film of all time, Latitude Zero, featuring Woo-hoo! Joseph Cotton playing against type as a man of action in a very, 
very nice suit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and an ascot, He's, if I remember. How much yeah. lame? Oh, well, yeah. All the lame. All the lame. <laughs> I think it might have just been lame on them. That's true. That's true. Well, yeah, Walter Brennan is fantastic in My Darling Clementine, too. That's a guy, yeah, he, always, I, he always produced roles like with teeth or without teeth, and I think that was without teeth on that one, because yeah, he's a bad dude. <laughs> the uh, the other thing I love in Latitude Zero is the, the lion bat puppet creature. Like, you won't believe <laughs> the special effect for that even after you've seen it. <laughs> it is so pretty bad. <laughs> It's not very good. (laughs) All right. So, guest's prerogative. Chad, uh, do you have a movie that you'd like to recommend for an actor playing against type? Okay, uh, I got a two-for-one here, and I'm going to go with uh, Nightmare in Badham County with uh, Chuck Norris as a lecherous southern sheriff who likes to railroad young women and get them tossed in a, a female penal colony down there. And the warden is played by Robert Reed, who has a, a who has a predilection predilection for young girls, who he always brings up to the big house for uh, inspection, you know, something, you know. But yeah, you see Mike Brady, because this is like in the seventies, and the Brady Bunch was still in syndication pretty heavily, and it's like eh, a little bit dissonance there, so. That's my pet. <laughs> Holy crap. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I thought I knew exploitation movies and damn. <laughs> well, it was really funny cuz the first time I saw that movie and it's like one of the most depressing films I ever saw because they're trying to say something cuz it was a made for TV movie and I remember seeing it later oh to, to rent on VHS and so I got it and I was watching it and of course this is like the European cut and they cut in all this all these boobs and lesbian makeout scenes and all the women in prison stables and it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, this isn't made for TV. How did this get standards <laughs> and practices? And, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't remember this part. But, uh, <laughs> Nightmare in, bad, in bad County. County. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. It's it's a very depressing film. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, everybody, we're going to go get our feelings hurt. Again. <laughs> uh, how about you, Sean? I don't have a lot. I mean, sometimes I have a lot to say about them. This is not one of those times, but I want to put this to you. You know the typical Jack Nicholson role, right? I do. He smiles like a cat and wears sunglasses. And, well, and, you know, he's kind of... He's kind of manic and yes. yeah. And you know the typical Bruce Dern role where he's he's kind of, you know, kind of a little bit cranky, kind of quiet, slightly kinda, unhinged. Yeah. 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 Now imagine them playing each other's parts. Oh dear. And you have the king of Marvin Gardens. <laughs> I can do it. <laughs> I, uh, King of Marvin Garden. It's honestly my favorite in, uh, there was a, a, a set that Criterion put out that included this and head and five easy pieces. Oh, Ravelson. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was Putney Swope in that? No. Cause I've never seen That's... Putney Swope. 
think that was like the like the Bob Ravelson, not Ravelson, but like his production company box set. I think. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, I think it's called America Lost and Found. Yes. Is the name yes. of the set. Okay. okay. Um, no, there. Uh, Robert Downey Sr. directed Putney Swope, and and uh, Criterion did put it out on a box, but not that box. Not that box. But yeah. I mean, there's a lot of the stuff on here. Well, there's head. And then there's the rest of the stuff, which is a lot of character driven. Uh, a lot of it is more character study than actual story. Yeah. This one I, is probably my favorite out of the set because there's a bit more story than some of the others. A little uh, less navel gazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just the joy of watching these two guys, like they deliberately decided to do each other's parts. And <laughs> it's, it's kind of awesome. That is awesome. That's really neat. It's uh, from 1972, uh, directed by Bob Rafelson. Yeah. Yep. Cool. So, uh, <clears throat> what do you got for us? I've got the most un- unexpected mad scientist of the 90s. I give you Dark City, in which <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland plays an asthmatic Peter Lorre. <laughs> I loved this movie. I saw it in the theaters because I saw the trailer with the world unfolding itself and creepy bald dudes in leather coats levitating down the street and thought, someone made me a movie. <laughs> and when it came out, Titanic was just starting to really take over the world. So nobody else in the world saw this. I am the Michigan theatrical grosses for Dark City, I believe. So it he plays a mad scientist who is working with the aliens that have kidnapped people and you find out at the end that they made him erase his own memories so he has no idea who he ever was. He's just a tool that they use for occasional human insight into their experiments. Huh. And and he talks like he's strangling on on the need to speak. It's very halting and gasping for breath while he's trying to communicate. It's really astonishing. It's a performance I had absolutely no idea was in him, and he sells every microsecond of it. I I really got the feeling seeing this. And yes, I saw it in the theater, too. (laughs) Oh, then I'm half of Michigan's theatrical (laughs) girls. Well, yeah, I made the mistake of drinking way too much soda, so near the end, there's this scene where all of the water pours off of the world, (laughs) and I'm sitting there... Trying to fold my legs into pretzels. <laughs> to get oh there. dear, I'm so sorry. But uh, I remember, uh, like at first, I was actively annoyed by his uh, performance, and the more I thought about it afterwards, the more I just cackled in glee. <laughs> <laughs> it's really unhinged. What it really looks like is that he was possessed by Nicolas Cage. <laughs> oh wow! Okay. Yeah, he, he, like, he's usually fairly sedate, and he, there is not a bit of scenery in that movie. Even scenes he has nothing to do with, there are teeth marks from him. Yeah, (laughs) it's like he was walking around the back lot just gnawing on buildings. But I I cannot recommend Dark City enough. It's also the first thing I saw Rufus Sewell in, and he's great. Oh, he's beyond mm. great in it. Yep. 
I, I described it to a friend as a Mage the Ascension campaign written and run by, by Thomas Legati, and that's pretty much what you get. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's got one of the best cold opens, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. And a truly amazing right-before-the-big-ending-fight plot point. Like, I'm not even going to hint at it, but I was overjoyed when that landed in the theater. <laughs> I just... <sighs> Beautiful. It's like one of those movies that you kind of put in your pocket, you know? It's like, this is yeah. my movie. So... <laughs> sort of like a rock and roll fable that takes place in another time, another place. <laughs> Hey, maybe the reason we never know where all those districts are is that this is the one that the strangers did before they figured out Smudge Town. Uh-huh. <laughs> city's like the second one. Okay. And the strangers are trying to find out what it means to be young. and Right, which is why it's tonight. It could be Marty's fixing things, so we're getting ripple effects. <laughs> <laughs> As that idiot McFly <laughs> keeps screwing yeah. up the time stream. I can't believe I forgot to say it, but uh, my my description of the the culture and and set design and everything in this is if they just they went through the fifties three times and then to nineteen eighty one. It was like nineteen fifty to fifty nine, fifty to fifty nine, fifty to fifty nine, nineteen eighty. <laughs> yeah. Well, with that, I think it's time that we. Uh, Get ourselves on some public transportation and ride the rails as far as we can until they're burned out. Sneak back into Richmond. <laughs> Want to get on my hog? Okay, and ride. but uh, I left my car in the battery, so at some point we've got to sneak back into the battery. You left the okay. car in the battery. You left the other car in the battery. You left the bus in the battery, and you left <laughs> <laughs> look. I'm the plan guy, so you can just deal with it. <laughs> Don't call me shit. <laughs> I am a head. I am a head for coming out here. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Rick. And apparently, I, I'm I'm so sad that he didn't like making this movie because it is my favorite Rick Moranis performance. Sure. But enough of that sort of thing. Chad, could you do Sean and I a favor and fire up the randomizer so that we know what we're watching uh, on the next episode? Oh, you bet. I'm pushing the button now. What have I done? <laughs> oh, uh, it's it's a canon movie, but not the usual kind of thing they made. Uh, Sean, have you seen Street Smart? Uh, maybe. Is that the one where all the homeless people are drinking venom and melting? Uh, that's Street Trash, and it's Viper Cut. Oh, right, right. <laughs> Then no, no, I have the, not. No, no melting winos in this movie. No, keep uh, away with dismembered appendages, right? Okay, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Christopher Reeve made them make this as a condition for coming back for Superman Four, and he plays a journalist who writes a who fakes a story and then gets in over his head when a real criminal thinks that he's being written about. So did oh, I win? Crap! You did! Yay! Congratulations! <laughs> Uh, sometime in season three, we will be asking you to come back, and sometime later in this season, yep, when we get around to Roar, we would love to have the entire Atomic Weight of Cheese crew join us. We're looking forward to it. Oh my god. Well, Roar is barely a movie, so we need, like, six people yep. talking about it. Yep. <laughs> that elephant was such a dick. 
<laughs> well, you know, some animals are just jerks. <laughs> so if... We have that to look forward to in two weeks and so much more as the season <laughs> yes. progresses. <laughs> and and thank you so much for joining hey, us, Hey, no Chad. problem, guys. Anytime. It's always a pleasure to have a guest on here yep. because then Sean and I don't have to carry the whole thing. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of the Fiasco Brothers Watch a Movie. If you like our podcast, please tell your movie fan friends about us however you can. We're available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, as well as the Prescribed Films Podcast Network at thepfpn.com. Uh, you can reach the Fiasco Brothers themselves on facebook.com slash fiascobrotherspodcast and on Twitter as at Fiasco Brothers. If you enjoy the show, and we hope you do, consider donating to our Patreon for a dollar a month to get exclusive mini-episodes. Also on our Patreon page for free, totally boss discussions cut from the existing episodes, as well as our Hubris Ween episodes. That's at patreon.com slash fiasco brothers. It all stays in, Sean. <laughs> we'll see you again in two weeks on our next episode. And again, thank you for listening. <laughs> Either William, he's either William DeFriend or William DeFoe. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. You can edit that out, right, John? Okay, so Tim, later, later, we're just going to re-record the whole show. Just the okay. two of us. <laughs> <Okay>. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs>